publishes an excellent Bible study magazine entitled Israel My Glory. Almost every issue has a study article of the book of the Bible. And by the way, uh, Mr. David Levy, who's a Jewish believer on our staff and the overseer of all of our overseas missionaries, is the one who writes those uh, book Bible commentaries. And then almost every issue also has a study article on the doctrine taught in the Word of God. And I'm a goy, according to them, a Gentile believer, and I have the privilege of writing those doctrinal articles. But then there are news updates of things going on in many places around the world where Christians are being persecuted, and uh, obviously things relate to the nation of Israel as well. Right now, there are approximately 200,000 copies of every issue of that magazine going out to 151 nations all over the world. In fact, by God's grace, it's now surpassed Christianity Day, World Magazine, and most other Christian publications. If you're not already subscribed to Israel My Glory, the mission does offer a free one-year trial subscription. And if you'd like to take advantage of that offer, if you go up to the bookstore, you'll see there that some sign-up sheets that say Israel My Glory across the top. And we would ask you please to print very clearly your name and mailing address. Our ladies haven't learned Egyptian hieroglyphics yet, so they <laughs> appreciate good, clear print. And then... Leave the sheets there. Some folks seem to think they have to take that sheet with them to get the magazine. No, there's space for 10 people to sign up. So when you sign up, leave it there, please. And other folks can sign up as well. And Lord willing, about uh, two or three months from now, you'll begin to receive that uh, through the mail. Now, in our study last evening, uh, we began our study of things that the Bible teaches about the person of Jesus Christ. And we looked at the fact that he is an eternal being. Never had a beginning, never will have an end. He's always existed. And also we saw that he pre-existed even before his incarnation uh, as a human being through the Virgin Mary here upon planet Earth. And then we began to look at evidences from the Word of God for the deity of Jesus Christ. The deity of Jesus Christ, uh, which means that he's fully God, possessing all the attributes of deity. And we looked at uh, the Old Testament, two passages that ascribe deity to the Messiah. We looked at the fact that the name Emmanuel given to him, both for the virgin birth prophecy, Isaiah 7:14, and, and Matthew recorded that again in Matthew 1:23. That name Emmanuel means God with us, which is indicated that even while he was incarnated uh, through birth through the Virgin Mary, this was deity, absolute deity, incarnated human flesh, dwelling, tabernacling in the midst of human beings here upon planet Earth. Then we saw that God, the Father, exhorted all the angels to worship Christ, even while he was in his humanity. And the Bible makes it very clear that humanity, man is never to be worshipped. Only deity is to be worshipped. And the fact that God commanded all the angelic hosts to worship Jesus, again, was God's way of indicating he is absolute deity, and therefore deserves to be worshipped. And then finally, last evening, we saw that human beings worship Christ as well. They recognize he's got to be deity. And what the intriguing thing is, Jesus accepted their worship. He didn't tell them, don't worship me. We saw where when John twice saw a great angel, uh, he was overwhelmed in the presence of supernatural being. He bowed down to worship and the angel said, don't do that. You know, worship only God. So the fact that human beings worship Christ, the fact that God commanded angels or exhorted angels to worship Jesus implied very strongly as deity. Now, with that in mind, we pick up now at the very bottom of the second page of your, of your handout there, with capital letter E, where we see that Jesus himself claimed deity for himself. He claimed deity for himself. And uh, one place was in John 8, 58, and we looked at that about his uh, pre-existence before incarnation last evening, where Jesus said, uh, Abraham saw my day. And rejoiced at it. And his enemies said, now wait a minute. Abraham lived some 2,000 years ago. You're not even 50 years of age yet. You're trying to tell us that Abraham saw you? And he said, before Abraham was, I am. I am. And he was claiming that he's the I am who spoke to Moses at the burning bush back in, in the book of Exodus. And that uh, I am is simply an English translation of God's personal name. Uh, we, our English translations often have his personal name as Jehovah, or it may have been the form Yahweh, but that is a word which means I exist in and of myself. 
I'm the self-existing one. And so when Jesus said, I am, he's claiming that he is a self-existing being. And only deity is self-existing. All other forms of life do not exist in and of their own. They were created by a divine being. So the fact that he claimed to be the I am, he's claiming to be Yahweh or Jehovah, the self-existing one. Then look, if you would, please, at John chapter 10 and verse 30. We're at the top of our third page now in our notes. John chapter 10 and verse 30. Very interesting claim that Jesus made about him and his relationship with God the Father. John chapter 10, verse 30. He said, I and my Father are one. I and my Father are one. Now, by that, he doesn't mean they're the same person. We're going to see later on. They're they're two totally separate, distinct persons. But when he says, I and the Father are one, he's claiming to be of the same essence or nature as God the Father. We are one in essence. We are one in nature. In other words, he's saying, both of us have exactly the same divine nature, with all the same divine attributes. The Father is absolute deity. I am absolute deity. We are one in essence or nature. He was thereby claiming deity for himself. And notice, the Jews to whom he said that recognized the implication of that claim because we're told in verse 31, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. They were taught, if a mere man claims deity for himself, that's blasphemy. Because no human being could be also divine, that's blasphemy. And according to their law, God gave to them blasphemy was to bring death penalty, stoning to death. And they realized when he said, I and the Father are one, he's claiming absolute deity for himself. So immediately they pick up stones, thinking he's guilty of blasphemy, they're going to try to put him to death. Going to try to put him to death. So here he was claiming deity uh, for himself. In fact, look at uh, verse 32. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For good work we stone you not, but for blasphemy. And because of you being a man, make yourself God. They're saying, You're only a man. You're only a human being. And by that claim you made, you and the Father are one. You are trying to make yourself God. So they recognize the significance of that. Number three, Jesus also claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the Son of God. In Matthew 27, verse 43, we have the record when Jesus was on the cross. Uh, the chief priests, religious leaders of Israel, and others said that he claimed to be the Son of God. They claimed that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. And he did claim to be the Son of God. Uh, In uh, John chapter 5 and verse 18. You might want to look at this. John chapter 5 and verse 18. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, as far as they were concerned, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God, making himself equal with God. When the word son is used in a father-son relationship, the word son, to the Jewish way of thinking in biblical times, always implied, if, if you're a son of a father, you have identically the same nature as your father. And so, with Jesus claiming to have God as his father, and he, he is the Son of God, he was thereby claiming, I have exactly the same nature as my Heavenly Father. He is absolute deity with a divine nature. As his Son, I am absolute deity with a divine nature as well. Uh, look at, if you would please, at uh, chapter 10 again and verse 36. Chapter 10 and verse 36. Say you, Jesus said, do you say of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, you blaspheme because I said I am the Son of God? Here he is. He's claiming to be the Son of God. And again, they recognize the significance of that claim. 
You say you're the son of God. You are claiming absolute deity for yourself. But I'll give you some other references along similar lines here. But again, it's important to know that the term son of God in the Bible is referring to absolute deity. Now, once he became incarnated, he also became the son of man. And there, the term son is, you're a descendant of man, and therefore you have identically the same human nature as man has a human nature. So the, the reason for these two different terms applied to Jesus, son of God, absolute deity. Same divine nature as, as a heavenly father, God the Father. But son of man, once he becomes incarnated in flesh, that's humanity. He also has a complete human nature that is characteristic of those three human beings. Then, number four, Jesus claimed the authority to forgive sins. He claimed the authority to forgive sins. In Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, we have the record where Jesus had gone into a house and a huge crowd of people uh, came to meet with him, many of them hoping to be healed of their illnesses. And they not only filled the whole house, they even had the, the house basically surrounded. They were standing outside. And there were some men who had a friend uh, who had a serious illness. And they had to carry him on a litter like a stretcher. And they were determined to get him into the house to Jesus so Jesus could heal this man. And, but they couldn't get through the crowd. So they climbed up on the roof with this man on, on the litter and they tore up all the tiles of the roof. And with ropes they lowered this man right down in front of Jesus where he was standing in the midst of the crowd. And Jesus uh, said to the man, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. This is in Mark chapter 2. And verses 5 through 11. Uh, if you would please look at, let me get my page turned here. This man was sick with palsy. And in verse 5, when Jesus saw the faith of the friends of this man, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, your sins are forgiven you. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak this blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? They believe that God is the only one who ultimately could forgive sins. Now, they were correct in that, that ultimately God is the only one who can fully forgive sins. But they were incorrect in thinking he's only a man. And therefore, he can't make that claim that he has the authority to forgive sins. And since they thought he was only a man, claiming what was the prerogative of God... They said he's guilty, they're thinking in their minds, he's guilty of blasphemy, guilty of blasphemy. So that they, they knew, and it's true, that ultimately, as far as eternal forgiveness of sins is concerned, only God can do that. And they recognized that was Jesus was claiming for himself. And so he thereby was claiming deity for himself, the one who had the authority to forgive, ultimately, the sins of human beings. Then, uh, look, if you would, please, at uh, Matthew chapter 26, verse 5, at number 5 here in our outline, Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 to 66. While you're turning there, I'd point out that in Matthew 24, verse 30, uh, Jesus, at verse 21 of Matthew 24, had already talked about the future great tribulation, which will be the unparalleled time of trouble in all of world history, which is the second half of that seven-year period before Jesus returns to earth for the second coming. And then he begins in verse uh, uh, 29 of Matthew 20, talking about things that will take place after the Great Tribulation, a great cosmic disturbances taking place in the universe. Then after those, they see the sign of the Son of Man appear in the heavens. And after the sign, the tribes of the earth mourn. And finally, in verses 30 and 31, they see the Son of Man coming out of heaven, in great glory on the clouds of heaven. The Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, look in light of that at Matthew 26. Matthew 26, beginning verse 63. Matthew 26, and beginning with verse 63. Jesus was on trial before the Sanhedrin, the, the religious leaders of Israel. 
And uh, notice what we read in verse 63. Caiaphas, the high priest, was there as well. And notice, there were some false accusers came in and falsely accused Jesus of something that he had never been guilty of. And Jesus didn't respond to them. He didn't try to give any verbal defense and say, hey, they're telling lies about this. And we're told in verse 63, Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure you by the living God, which is a high priest's way of, of requiring a man to tell the truth. I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you be the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of God. Jesus said unto him, You have said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. We saw last night, that's going back to what was foretold to Daniel in Daniel 7, where Jesus, the Messiah, is presented as the Son of Man that comes with the clouds of heaven. Right before he's going to judge the Antichrist and remove the last great form of Gentile world dominion from planet Earth. And so when Jesus says here, he goes back to, da to Daniel 7, you're going to see the Son of Man. Notice here he's talking about his humanity. Son of Man, which is what it was called there in Daniel 7. You shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. We saw last night, according to Psalm 104, verse 3, and even other Old Testament passages, the clouds are the chariot of God. Only deity comes on the clouds of heaven. And so right away, he's claiming deity for himself again. Notice how the high priest reacted. Verse 65, Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? The answer said, He's guilty of death. He's guilty of death. So again, by his claiming that he's the one that would come as the Son of Man in the clouds of heaven. He was ascribing deity to himself and claiming that, and that's what they recognized. So, Jesus himself claimed his deity. He wasn't just a man. He was absolute deity incarnated in human flesh. Now, there's another line of evidence for the deity of Christ. This is a capital F in our outline. Other persons ascribe deity to Christ. Other persons ascribe deity to Christ. And God the Father did. Look, please, at the New Testament reference we give here. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. In fact, chapter 1 of Hebrews is an incredible description of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And look at verses 8 and 9. But unto the Son, he says... Referring to God saying, Unto the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above your fellows. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's going back to Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. And he's quoting it here in Hebrews 1. And what he's saying is that back there in Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, God the Father was saying to Jesus Christ, his son, he called him God. God the Father called his son God. And in the Psalm passage, the Hebrew name for God there is Elohim. Elohim. So God the Father was calling his son Elohim, your throne, O Elohim, verse 8 of Hebrews 1, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hate iniquity. Therefore, God, and again it's Elohim for the Son, even thy God, and here again it's Elohim, referring to God the Father, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. I'd point out that in the Hebrew language, there were three primary names for deity. One was Elohim. One was Adonai, and one was Yahweh or Jehovah. Three primary names for deity. And what you have here, the writer of Hebrews going back to what was in Psalm 45, uh, verses 6 and 7, and he says, God the Father, who is Elohim, 
was calling his son Elohim. And he's saying here in, in verse 9 of Hebrews 9, Therefore Elohim, referring to the son, even thy Elohim, which is God the Father, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. So here God the Father, who's, who has one of the primary names of deity, Elohim, gives the same primary name of deity, Elohim, to his son. Here God the Father is declaring his son is absolute deity. Elohim, just as the Father, is absolute deity, Elohim. The strong, mighty one is the idea in that word Elohim. Then look, please, at Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. Again, a very fascinating passage that involved both the God the Father and the Messiah. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days come, says the Lord. Now, if you notice, the word Lord is written entirely in capital letters. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When you have that in the English Old Testament, English translates the Old Testament, that indicates that in the Hebrew text, there the name of God was Yahweh or Jehovah. Yahweh, or sometimes we say Jehovah. So behold, the days come, says Yahweh or Jehovah, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. Remember what we heard last evening? Dr. Whitcomb, Messiah, and Zechariah is called the branch. So here's God the Father, who's Yahweh, saying, I will raise unto David a righteous branch. In other words, the Messiah is going to be a descendant of King David. I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall raise and prosper, and shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved. When he comes to rule the earth, Judah is going to be saved. And Israel will dwell safely. Once Messiah comes and rules the world, the nation of Israel will dwell safely for the whole thousand year reign of the Messiah. And this is his name. This is the branches or the future king's name, the Messiah. His name whereby he shall be called. Yahweh or Jehovah our righteousness is what the Hebrew says. Here's God the Father who's Yahweh or Jehovah saying of the Messiah, his name will be called Yahweh or Jehovah of righteousness. So here's God the Father using a primary name of God, assigning it also to another being, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. So God the Father ascribed deity. To Christ, calling him Elohim, the same as the Father's Elohim, also calling him Yahweh or Jehovah, the same as the Father is is Elwa, Yahweh or Jehovah. Now, King David, this is number two in our outline under Kepler F, also ascribed deity to the Messiah while influenced by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Psalm 110, verse one. Psalm 110, verse one. Where David, moved by the Holy Spirit, is writing this particular psalm. And uh, notice what he, what he says here. Psalm 110, and verse 1. If I can get my pages apart. I'll, I'll try to break in a new Bible. And it's hard to get the pages to separate uh, whatever you want them to. There we go. Psalm 110, verse 1. David writing says, the Lord, and notice here, Lord's all in capital letters. So this is Yahweh, Jehovah, in the Hebrew text. The Lord said unto my Lord, and notice, in this word, Lord, only the L is capitalized in the English Bible, and then O-R-D is small. Whenever that appears, it will, it's not the word Jehovah, but the word Adonai, which is a third primary name for deity, Adonai. And here God the Father is speaking about the Messiah. Yahweh said unto my Adonai, the person David says who's my Adonai, my master is, is the idea. Sit you at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is indicating that when Jesus, after he died, rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And God the Father, this is foretelling centuries ahead of time, God the Father would say to him, you sit here in my right hand, in my throne, until I make your enemies your footstool. Until I prepare you to rid the earth of all 
your enemies. And that's when you'll get off my throne and you're going to sit upon another throne, the throne of your ancestor David, because that's when you're going to administer my rule over the earth politically for the last thousand years of our present planet's history. So David here, as the Spirit of God was moving him, has here God the Father, who's Yahweh, saying something to the Messiah, and David calls the Messiah, my Lord, my Master, my Adonai. Look at what Jesus said about that in Matthew 22. Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 41. Matthew chapter 22, and beginning with verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think of of Christ? In other words, of the Messiah. Whose son is he? They say to him, well, the son of David, thinking of his humanity. They thought Messiah was only going to be a man, but they firmly believed he'd be a descendant of David. So when he said, what do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? They say, well, the son of David. He says unto them, how then does David in the spirit, in other words, by writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, call him Adonai? If he's only a descendant of David, you'd think he'd be inferior to David. But why did David, when the Spirit of God was moving him to write back there in Psalm 110, verse 1, call the Messiah my Adonai, ascribing a primary name of deity to him? And he quotes here, How then did David in spirit call him Adonai, saying, The Lord, Yahweh, said unto my Adonai, Sit you on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Adonai, how is he his son? How is he his son? Notice the response. They had no answer for that. He had him backed into a corner. No man was able to answer him a word. Neither dared any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. They were asking him questions, trying to get him in a trap. And he turned the table on him, get him in a trap. Because if, if they say, well, yeah, David was calling, calling the Messiah Adonai, then they're going to have to admit that's deity. That's deity. And they, they knew they, they would, because they believed Messiah is only going to be a human being. And to say he's Adonai deity, that's blasphemy. And they knew according to the law they didn't dare do that. And so he had it back to the court. No matter which way they were going to go, they were going to put their necks on the noose. And they didn't dare give him an answer to that question. Incredible. But again, it's ascribing deity to the Messiah. Now, this is an incredible one here. Number three, demons called Jesus the Son of God. The Son of God. Just to, for time here, let's look at the Luke 4 reference. Luke chapter 4. Demons, from all we can discern, are fallen angels who followed Satan and is rebellion against God uh, sometime after God uh, completed creation there in Genesis chapter 1. And Luke chapter 4, and we come to verse 41. In fact, to get the context, look at verse 40. Now, when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with different diseases brought them unto him, He laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are Christ the Son of God. Even these evil angels recognize who he was. They should have because he's the one that created all the angels. And before they rebelled against him and God, when they were holy angels, they saw him there in heaven with all of this incredible power and glory, and splendor, and deity. So now they're in a fallen state. But when they see him, even incarnated in human flesh, they knew who he was. And so they cry out to him, You are Christ, in other words, the Messiah, the Son of God. And they recognized he had such authority, he could do with them whatever he wanted to. In fact, there's another place uh, where he confronted demons in the, in the gathering man. And they, they said... We know who you are, the Son of God. 
And they knew he had the authority to cast them forever into a horrible place of judgment where some of the evil fallen angels of the past were already imprisoned in a place called Tartarus, which was deeper and worse than hell itself, horrible place for evil angels to go. And they pled with him, please don't cast us into the abyss, which is the ascriptive term for this place called Tartarus. They knew he had the authority to put them wherever he wanted to. And they pled with him, don't do it. And they said, look, there's some pigs over here. Put us in the pigs. And he did. And the pigs went wild, ran down the Sea of Galilee and drowned. Now that didn't destroy those evil angels because you can't kill angels. But at least they got off the hook, they thought, of going into the pigs. They'd sooner have the pigs drown, they could get out of them, than have Christ cast them into Tartarus or the abyss, where it would be a horrendous place of judgment for them as, as evil angels under the wrath of God. So the demons recognize he's the son of God. Satan recognized he's the son of God. We're here again in Luke 4. Look at verse 3 of Luke chapter 4. And the devil said unto him, If you be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. Remember, Satan came to him out in the wilderness after Jesus had fastened out there for 40 days and nights, hadn't eaten any food. Say the least in his humanity, would have been very, very hungry. And this is one of Satan's temptations. If you be the Son of God, command this stone that be made bread. Now let me put some, point something out to you. Our English translations say, if you be the son of God, that gives the implication, Satan's not sure if he is or not. But the Greek language indicates otherwise. There were, in the Greek language, there were three different ways of stating a conditional statement. One was, well, if this is so, but I'm not, I don't know if it is or not. That was one, and you can tell just by the Greek terminology, that was the way it was. But one of the expressions was, really had the force of, since you are this. And that's the form that Satan used here. There was no doubt in Satan's mind who Jesus was. Because again, Christ created him as a holy angel. And he saw Christ in all of his glory in heaven before he decided to rebel against God. And so he was really saying to him, since you are the Son of God, command these stones to be turned into bread, satisfy your hunger. Then look, if you would please, at verse 9 where Satan brought him to Jerusalem, set him on a pinnacle of the temple, set him to him, and again, the force is, since you are the Son of God, cast yourself down from here, for it's written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. So Satan was really saying, you are the Son of God. There was no doubt in Satan's mind that that's who he was. Then, a group of disciples, number five, Matthew 14, verse 33, where Jesus had stayed behind praying while his disciples started rowing across the Sea of Galilee at night and a storm started to come down upon them. And Jesus, with a human body like we have, walked on the surface of the water to them. And they were so astounded by this that when he got into the boat, they said, surely you are the Son of God. And they worshipped him. Again, recognizing his absolute deity. As the Son of God is absolute deity, so he deserves their worship. That was the disciples doing that. Peter, number 7, Matthew 16, verse 16. The apostles had been out for a period of time before Matthew 16, preaching the gospel of the kingdom to the people of Israel, just as Christ back in Matthew 10 commissioned them to do. And after they'd been out a while preaching the gospel of the kingdom to the people of Israel, they come back to report in Christ, and he said to them, Who do men say that I am? Well, some say that you're one of the prophets. Uh, or some say that you're John the Baptist, come back to life again. And he said to his apostles, who do you say that I am? And Jesus gave that, uh, Matt, I'm sorry, Peter gave that tremendous, that tremendous declaration in Matthew 16, 16. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter saying, Jesus, you are the son of God. You're the Messiah, the son of God. So Peter was describing thereby deity to him. Roman soldiers who stood at the base of the cross when Christ was on that cross. Matthew 27, verse 54. And when they saw the tremendous earthquake that took place when Christ died and the darkness that came over that area, they said, truly, this was the Son of God. Because they saw all of nature responding so negatively to Christ's death. 
Why would nature do that? Nature saw what their creator experienced on that cross. He's the one that created nature. The whole universe, the sun, the stars, the earth, the mountains, and all the rest. And when Jesus, the creator of all of nature, died on the cross, nature reacted in a violent way. Earthquake, darkness for a period of time. And that so impressed the Roman soldiers at the base of that cross. They said, surely he was the son of God. He must be deity. We crucified on a cross one who is deity. Then the angel Gabriel, number nine, when he came to Mary, Luke chapter one, verse 35, and announced to her, she was the woman, God's chosen vessel, through whom the promised Messiah was born in the world. And Gabriel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy Spirit will cause supernatural conception in your womb. And that Holy One who will be born of you, that Holy Child, will be called the Son of God. So the angel Gabriel was ascribing deity to this one who will be born of the Virgin Mary. He will be called the Son of God. Look at John the Baptist's testimony in John chapter 1 and verse 49. John chapter 1 and verse 49. Of course, John the Baptist was a forerunner of the Lord Jesus, preparing the way for him. And notice what he said. Verse, let me get it here. John 1 verse 34. Forgive me. John 1 34, where John says that I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. John 1 verse 34. I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. But then in the same chapter, look at Nathanael's testimony. John 1, verse 49. John 1, verse 45. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Again, describing deity by calling him the Son of God. Look at John chapter 11, verse 27. Lazarus, a dear friend of Jesus had died. And when Jesus came to where he had been put in the tomb, uh, he met with Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary. And look at what Martha said in John 11, verse 27, to the Lord Jesus. She said unto him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. I believe that you are the Christ, in other words, the Messiah, the Son of God. So she recognized he was deity. Deity. The Apostle John, John chapter 20, verse 31. Where John tells his readers the purpose of his writing the gospel. And referring to Jesus' miracles that he performed, he said, Many other signs Jesus performed, which are not recorded in this book. John recorded about seven or eight miracles that Jesus had performed. But he said, many other signs and miracles Jesus performed, which were not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And believing, have life in his name. Have life in his name. Here, the Apostle John, who lived with Jesus, administered with him for over three years, and saw all of his miracles that he performed, and heard his teaching, was absolutely convinced Jesus was the Son of God, absolute deity. The Apostle Paul, let me just call your attention to one of the references we give to you here, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. This is an incredible statement. And I'm going to give you a very literal translation, very literal translation of what he says. He said of Jesus, In him dwells all the fullness of deity in bodily form. It's a very little translation of the Greek language. Colossians 2.9 In him dwells all the fullness of deity. He doesn't have just some of the attributes of deity. He's got the fullness of deity. In him dwells all the fullness of deity in bodily form. His way of saying that Jesus Christ is absolute deity incarnated. 
uh, in human flesh. Dr. Whitcomb referred to Doubting Thomas, we often call him that, and said, you know, I won't believe he's risen from the dead unless I can put my finger in the wound or his hand in the spear thrust in the side. And when Jesus said, Thomas, look at my hands, put your finger there. He said, my Lord and my God, ascribing deity to Jesus, my Lord and my God. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 1, let's go there again because there are so many significant things he says here about Jesus, and many of which are ascribing absolute deity to him. Hebrews chapter 1, and beginning with verse 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at different times and in different manners spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Notice here he's calling Jesus God's Son. God in the past has spoken to us different ways, different times by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken unto us by his Son, whom he's appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of God's glory, now, what he's referring to there is what Matthew records for us in Matthew 17. Where Jesus took three of his apostles, Peter, James, and John, to the top of a mountain. It was transfigured before those three men. What happened was a brilliant light began radiating right through Jesus' flesh and clothing. At the same time, a cloud with a bright light radiating through it appeared overhead. Now in the midst of that bright cloud, God the Father said of Jesus, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, what was that cloud with a bright light in it? That was none other than the pillar of cloud that enshrouded the pillar of fire that led the people of Israel in their exodus out of Egypt across the Red Sea, was with them for their forty years of wilderness wandering, and went with them into the promised land of Canaan. And that brightness in the cloud the Jews called the Shekinah. They called it that after Hebrew verb for to dwell. Every time they saw that brilliant light, often in the form of fire, it always signified the presence of absolute deity. That's what the fire was at the burning bush to Moses. Again, that's what the pillar of fire was that led him in their exodus out of Egypt. That's what the fire was that came down on top of Mount Sinai when God called Moses up there to give the Mosaic law to the people of Israel. That's what the, the fire was that went into the tabernacle out of the wilderness, Exodus 40, of the day they dedicated for the worship of God. Every time that brilliant light or fire appeared, it always signified the unique presence of deity. Now, that appeared overhead while Jesus had the brilliant light ready into his flesh. And the disciples, they knew what this was up here. In fact, Peter, one of his epistles, called what appeared on that day of transfiguration was the, the glory of God that appeared. When they compared the light radiating through that cloud with the light radiating through Jesus' human flesh, they saw by comparison they were identically the same two lights. And therefore, since the light in the cloud overhead represented absolute deity, the light in Jesus' flesh represented absolute deity, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God, which is why John, who was one of those three men there, later on in John 1.14 said, And the Word became flesh, a human being, and we beheld his glory. Some of us beheld his glory, the Shekinah glory of God, of deity. The Word became flesh, and notice, and tabernacled among us. Just as the Shekinah glory went into the tabernacle of the wilderness, Jesus in his flesh was deity tabernacling in the midst of the people of Israel, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. They saw that Shekinah glory in Jesus' flesh. Peter, James, and John did on the day he was transfigured before those three men there on that mountain. And that was an absolute way of signifying the deity of Jesus. Now notice, in light of that, verse 3 of Hebrews 1, the writer says of Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory... The brightness of his glory and the express image 
And the word expressed here means the exact representation that Jesus was the brightness of God's glory. He was the exact representation of his person, literally of his nature, of his nature, divine nature. And upholding all things by the word of his power. There's Colossians 1 again, the one who holds the whole universe together, functioning every day. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, who we looked at earlier, be made so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, you are my son. God never said that to the angels, but he said that of Jesus. This day have I begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the first begotten into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And on and on and on he goes. Under the sun, he says, your throne, O God, Elohim, we looked at before, is forever and ever. Verse 9, therefore, Elohim, even your Elohim has anointed you. All these statements in Hebrews 1 are overwhelming expressions of the absolute deity of Jesus Christ. He's the radiance of God's glory. The exact representation of his nature. Incredible. Incredible statements. Deity. Absolute deity. Incarnated in human flesh. Tabernacling in the midst of human beings upon planet earth for 30 some years. An exact representation of what God is like to human beings is what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. Now, capital letter G. His bodily resurrection demonstrated his deity. His bodily resurrection demonstrated his deity. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Romans chapter 1. And verse 4. Let me give you a little bit of background. Research of ancient documents, Jewish documents, Roman documents, and Greek documents indicated that one of the beliefs that Jews and Gentiles back in Jesus' day had was this. No son of God could ever die by crucifixion. Be impossible for a son of God to die by crucifixion. Well, the son of God did die by crucifixion. But, remember what, again, the religious leader said to Jesus while he was on the cross, Matthew 27. If you be the son of God, come down from that cross. It will believe you. That was their way of saying, no son of God can die by crucifixion. If you stay on that cross and die by crucifixion, that's all the proof we need. You're not the son of God. And so because Jesus stayed on that cross and died by crucifixion, the unsaved world concluded he can't be the son of God because no son of God could die by crucifixion. Well, notice what Paul says in Romans 1. Verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, how? By the resurrection from the dead. The world said he can't be the Son of God because he died on that cross. God reversed that wrong verdict three days later by raising Jesus from the, from the dead and Paul says that was God's way of saying to the world, I don't care if he did die at a cross, I raised him from the dead as my way of saying to you, he is my son, absolute deity, incarnated in human flesh. And so the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was another way of God ascribing absolute deity to him. He's not just a man. He is absolute deity with all the attributes of deity incarnated, dwelling in one human body here upon planet Earth. He's to be worshipped by the angels. He's to be worshipped by human beings, even the demons. And no wonder, Paul says, Philippians 2, the day is going to come when every knee will bow before him and acknowledge who he is, the very Son of God, incarnated in human flesh. And dear friends, that's the one who died for you and who died for me. He didn't have to come to planet Earth and do that for us, become incarnated human flesh. He didn't have to go to the cross, but he volunteered to do it. 
And Lord willing, a little bit later on, we're going to look at the Kenosis passage in Philippians chapter 2, which has incredible significance along these lines. And a lot more with historical background that sheds so much light on what Paul says about him there when he died on the cross. But the thing that motivated him to do that was because he was more concerned about your welfare and mine than his own. He's willing to be sacrificed as the Son of God, the spotless, sinless Son of God in human flesh, was willing to be sacrificed that you and I could be saved from eternal wrath of God in the eternal lake of fire forever and ever and ever by placing our trust in him and him alone to be our Savior, who died as our substitute on the cross and paid in full the penalty of your sins and mine and was buried and three days later was resurrected from the dead. And over a period of 40 days, over 500 people witnessed the fact that he actually rose bodily from the dead because they saw him in that human body with the wounds of his crucifixion still in his hands and in his side. These are incredible, incredible truths. And we should allow them to impact us in a life-changing way, in a life-changing way. And dear friend, if you came here You've never understood before who this Jesus is that people talk about and worship and sing about and praise. And you've never acknowledged what he did for you. Don't leave here without placing your trust in him and him alone to be your savior from sin. If you reject him, it's not just a man you're rejecting. You're rejecting the son of God. His absolute deity. And God will judge if you leave this life without having trusted His Son, just through faith in what He did for you once and for all at the cross of Calvary and then resurrected from the dead, trusting Him and Him alone to be your Savior from sin. God our Father, we pray that you'll take these awesome, awesome truths concerning the Lord Jesus and use them for their God-intended purpose to impress upon us who he is and what he did for us. And as a result of being impressed with that, he could have life-changing influence in all of our hearts and lives for your honor and for your glory. And so take these truths and through the power of the Spirit of God, impact our lives in a personal way concerning who Jesus is. And for this we pray, and we praise you and thank you, in Jesus' blessed name, amen.